let's take our Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I read a little story of a, of a man who was considered the wisest man in this small town. And uh, two other guys weren't getting along at all, so they decided to go to this man and get his, uh, his opinion about this situation. And so one went, uh, went on a, like a Monday night, went to see this wise man and sat down and talked to him, spilled out his story. And at the end of the conversation, the, the wise man said, you're absolutely right. And then uh, the, on Tuesday, the second man came to his house and he sat down and he spilled out his story. And after listening, the wise man said to the second man, you are absolutely right. And his wife was listening to both conversations. And after the second man left, said, how could it possibly be that both men are absolutely right? That, that's impossible. And he looked at her and said, you're absolutely right, honey. <laughs> That's one way to get around conflict, it's just to avoid it, ignore it, but that doesn't work out very well in the long run, does it? Uh, when we face conflict with people, and we do, as a matter of fact, the only way to get away from conflict with people is to isolate yourself from all people, but then you can't get away from yourself, can you? Scripture says you got your flesh there, you're battling within yourself, so that doesn't solve the problem either, uh, not long term. It, solved, it would solve the problem with other people, but it doesn't solve the f conflict in your own heart. But when we're uh, dealing with conflict in our life, it's a painful thing, isn't it? All of us have uh, dealt with conflict. All of us deal with it. Some of you are dealing with it right now. It's painful. It's painful for us because uh, we are looking at ourselves. We're questioning ourselves. We're wondering what we should have said or could have said. Uh, we maul over in our minds all these things that, that perhaps uh, we could have done differently or should do. And uh, if not careful, we become bitter people even. It's, it's painful for those that we're in conflict with. A matter of fact, we'll see today in our text that, that we can wound, we can sin against, uh, we can ruin other Christians because of conflict. And then it's uh, painful because uh, if, if we allow that conflict to get out of hand, we sin against Christ himself because we've sinned against his people. And so it's, the, the, uh, the stakes are high, aren't they? It's very high to realize that, that being in conflict with fellow believers is a, is a painful and serious situation that we need to deal with. And so we're not surprised the scripture tells us how to deal with it, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and in Romans chapter 14. We have timeless principles that teach us how God would have us deal with conflicts with one another. And in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul has wrapped his conversation, his discussion, his instruction around two words, the word knowledge and the word love. And they're intermingled throughout the text here. We're going to separate them out in order to understand them easier, but they're intermingled throughout. And we start with the word, love, word knowledge, as we did last time. In verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, the Corinthians had written Paul to ask him these questions. We, we have a conflict in our church, and uh, we can't get over it. it, it just, it's dividing us, it's eating us up. What are we to do? And so they, this is a question they've asked him, and uh, God's inspired answer through the Apostle Paul is found in Romans chapter 8, 9, and 10. And so keep that in mind as we work through those passages together. Paul is answering a question they have concerning conflicts among the brothers and sisters there at the church. Uh, we start with knowledge. Eleven different times the word knowledge or know shows up in our text and so obviously he's talking about knowledge. Here's a little review from a couple of weeks ago. There are three different kinds of knowledge that Paul talks about here. There is a dangerous knowledge. In verse 1 he says, Concerning things sacrificed to idol, 
idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love puffs, uh, love edifies. Knowledge makes arrogant or puffs up, according to other translations of this passage. In other words, there's a dangerous type of knowledge where we have all of our opinions settled. And there's no loopholes. There's no room for any other discussion. Uh, our opinion is right. Uh, we are going to win the battle. We're going to win the argument no matter what. And when we're like that, then we have locked ourselves into a very dangerous type of knowledge that helps no one and makes us arrogant. And that's a dangerous, terrible knowledge to have. You can have all your theology correct, all your opinions right on the button, and still be dangerous in your knowledge. C.S. Lewis once wrote, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see anything that is above you. And so we have the issue of our arrogance blocking out the view of God himself. In our arrogance against others and in our own selves, uh, we don't see the greatness and the splendor of Christ. Secondly, there's a necessary knowledge, and this is very important. There's two different types of knowledge that is necessary if you want to be what God wants you to be, and if you want to be able to deal with conflict as God has, would have you deal with conflict. First of all, there's a knowledge of him, that, that he knows you. Look at verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So here's a sweet piece of knowledge that God knows us. And, and this is astounding to me when I think of passages like Romans chapter 5 verse 10 that tells us that we are the very, before Christ, we are the very enemies of God. And now we have been made his friend. That God has taken sinners and ungodly people and, and enemies of himself and, and weak people. And, and, he, and he said, you are lost. You have no hope. There's nothing that could be done for you. You can do nothing to please me. But because I have saved you, and, then, and we see the evidence of that and that you love him, because I have saved you, you now are known by me. Well, bask in that for just one moment, would you? That you are known. This is a personal word. A personal word for knowledge. God knows you personally. God loves you personally. You who were once his enemy are now his friend. You need to know that. And you need to know it especially as we work through our passage today on conflict. And then there's a second kind of knowledge that's necessary. And that is that we know who God is. He knows us. Do we know him? This is theology. And some people get the heebie-jeebies when they hear theology. That sounds like a high, heavy word, doesn't it? Well, look at theology in verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now, if you don't know that little piece of theology, which, by the way, is the key, I think, to the whole chapter, if you don't know that there is one God, one and only God, and through that one and only God we exist, and not only that, but that we, we exist for him, that our whole life is, is purposed to live for God, the one God. And if you don't know that there's one Lord Jesus Christ, which it says here that, that uh, in verse 6 that we exist through him, there are all things and we exist through him, that is we have been redeemed in him. Uh, everything we have spiritually speaking is in him. If we don't know that, then our whole life is, is led the wrong direction. And so how important, how necessary is it that we know theology? Theology just means the knowledge of God. That we know who God is. There's only one. He created all things and we exist for him. There's, there's only one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who the Lord used as the instrument, God uses the instrument in the Trinity, in the Godhead, to create all things, and, we, and he died for us that we can be saved. If you don't know that, then you cannot progress in a Christian life. Matter of fact, you have to question whether you know Christ at all. This is fundamental. There's a third kind of knowledge, is applied knowledge, applied, verse 7, however, not all men have this knowledge. Now he's talking about Christians, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So it's possible that we don't, don't have the knowledge, the true uh, crystallization of the knowledge that there is one God and one Savior. That somehow we, we believe there's other things out there, other forces or something that rival God himself. Some people elevate the devil to almost the same status as God. Some people look at the world system around us and almost elevate it as if God is helpless, his hands are tied. If you don't know the greatness of God and the, the wonder of the Savior, you will never progress on in the Christian life. And so we need to apply that to our lives. Now we know that, that we all struggle within ourselves. D.L. Moody once admitted, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any, any man I know. Could you echo that? Who, who bothers you more than you? You know, who, who do you have trouble with more than your, your very own self? But here's the thing that he's moving into here. If you don't understand that the Lord loves you, that the Lord died for you, that if you don't understand that, uh, that there's one God for whom we exist, that there's one Savior who saved us, if you don't understand those basic principles of life, then you go through life believing that, that everything you do is such, a, such an opposition to God that you cannot over, overcome your guilt. You got that? If we don't understand the true God who knows us, who loves us, who saved us, who made us his friend when we were his enemy, if we don't understand that, we live all of our lives wondering about the guilt that we have, and, and that guilt oppresses us and, and holds us down, and we don't move forward for him. So it's extremely important we get that. Now, all that was kind of reviewed, but I want to go to the audience now. Who is Paul talking to? Who, who is he talking to in this case? Well, there's a couple of different groups of people he's talking to. There, there's a legalistic group of Christians here who consider themselves strong. Uh, legalistic Christians always do. They criticize others. They judge others. They think everybody else's opinions are wrong, no matter what they are. They, they are the final word. Paul calls them in this section weak. As we go through this, we'll find the word weak five different times from verses 7 through 12. He's talking about weak Christians who are held in bondage to legalistic, man-made rules and regulations that are not, not found in the Scriptures. Those are weak Christians. The strong are those who have the knowledge of the truth and live in the liberty that Christ has given them. That's our two groups that we're working through here. So are you enjoying the freedoms that you have in Christ, bound only by the, the word of God, not by the rules and regulations of other people? These are, the, these are the, con, the conflict, the essence of the conflict here. That hasn't gone away, has it? That's, that's been true since the beginning. It's true today. All over Christianity, wherever you go throughout the world, you'll find these kind of conflicts. Where two different groups have a whole different set of ideas, and they can't get along, and they can't agree. So Paul wants to talk about that and deal with that. As he does so, uh, he is talking about these weak Christians. I want to talk about who they are. Who are the weak Christians? 
a very well-written, very helpful book from a number of years ago. It was entitled Decision-Making in the Will of God. And I'm going to draw from that a little bit here. He mentions four areas of life that define a weak Christian. And we find them in our text. Actually, the first one is over in, Rome, in Romans 14. So travel over there for a moment with me. And we will come back to that later. So you might keep a marker there. Romans chapter 14 and verse 1. What is uh, a weak Christian? What defines them? Four different things. First of all, they're weak in the faith. They're weak in faith. For chapter 14, verse 1. Now accept those who are weak in faith, but not for the pur purpose of passing judgment on their opinions. Drop all the way down to the last verse in the chapter. And this one, uh, remember, because I won't come back to it, but I'll mention it here. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. And so he's talking here about those who are weak in faith, who are doing things that their faith and their conscience will not allow them to do. They're going against their own faith. They're going against their own belief system. They're going against their own conscience. And he's saying to them they're weak in the faith. They have a view of God in most cases in which God is an angry God. And I fear that many, many Christians have that view of God. That they, they navigate through life just afraid, now watch this, that God wants to pounce on you. And he's looking for that opportunity when you mess up to jump on you. And if that is your view of God, which is not the view of scripture, if that's your view of God, you'll never enjoy the Christian life. A number of years ago, Marsha and I were visiting a pastor, a friend, and his wife, uh, who live on the other side, the west side of the Colorado mountains, the Rocky Mountains, kind of in the foothills there. And I love the, the Colorado mountains. I just love those out there. And I love to walk in them. And I wanted to go for a walk out in this area. This is not the mountains itself. It's the foothills. But it was a great big area, a beautiful area. I wanted to go walking in there. And uh, my friend said, you're welcome to go walking. But uh, I would mention they've spotted, spotted a mountain lion over there recently. Well, I took a stick. <laughs> I don't know what a stick would have done for me against a gigantic mountain lion, but I was going to walk anyway. So I, I took my stick and I went for a walk. And I enjoyed it to a degree, but I was looking over my shoulder at every moment. Perhaps a mountain lion would pounce on me and I'll be killed by a cat. That's how I think I will die. Okay? That is how I think I will die. A cat will kill me. Uh, since little cats can't, usually, uh, a big cat probably will. I, and by the way, I, I was thinking about this. This is really off the page, stupid stuff. But I've been in Africa a couple times. Wouldn't it be cool, instead of dying of some disease, you get killed by a, mountain, by, by a lion or stepped on by an elephant? I mean, wouldn't that be cool in the obituary? Stepped on by a rhino. You know? Okay, I know I'm weird, so I'm going to move on. But Okay. Back to my subject, <laughs> if I can get back there. If you spend your whole life thinking that God is looking for the opportunity to pounce on you and devour you, you'll never progress in the Christian life because you have a wrong view of God. And so their faith is weak. And because their faith is weak, they do not progress 
in the Christian life and they're weak Christians. Here's a second thing. Go back to our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. They're weak because they lack biblical knowledge. Now, we've seen that in verse 4. Therefore, concerning thing, eating, the things eating, I'm sorry, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world, but that there's no, no one, that there is no God but one. Look at verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge. What are they lacking? They're lacking the knowledge of who God is that we've already looked at. Verse 3, that he knows us. Verse 6, that we know who the true God is. If you lack that knowledge of God, then you're weak in the faith. Number 4, you have a weak conscience. Verse 7, we've already seen that. Verse 7, verse 10, verse 12, all mention a weak conscience. This is an oversensitive conscience condemning us for things that the scriptures do not declare wrong. And if you have that oversensitive conscience, it's always perking up and telling you you're wrong when you're not necessarily wrong. And that's a problem. Now, I want to talk about that today a little bit. I want to start with this. In, when Scripture talks about conscience, and it does on numerous occasions, it never says to defy your conscience. It never says to go against your conscience. But on the other hand, your conscience can be informed. It can be trained. It can be taught about the right things. If you don't have that, then you have a conscience that's controlling your life in unbiblical ways. At the same time, we don't try to force people's conscience to change. We simply inform concerning the Word of God. Uh, Marsha and I were in Connecticut several years ago, and we, this was back when cars were getting a little more, uh, a little more technology, and I, we rented a car out there that had a had some of the new technology, brand new car, and we had older cars, and it had a, the sensors in them, and one of the sensors had to do with the engine light coming on. So we're, drive, we're taking a little drive through the, through the countryside there, we're out away from everything, and the engine light comes on on this car. I didn't even know what it was. I kind of panicked. My engine's going to blow up here in the middle of New England. Who wants, to, who wants to die in New England, you know? So here I am in this car with this engine light on. So, so I, I, I go to a place where I can get a phone. This is back before cell phones. So we, we sent a telegraph and to, the, to the rental place. And we said to the rental place, the engine light is on. Are we going to die? Is the car going to blow up? And the gal said, don't worry about it. It's a brand new car. There's nothing wrong with it. The sensor must be wrong. Huh. Okay. So we got through that one. Since then, over the many years since then, uh, I've had my own cars with sensor lights come on, the engine light comes on. I've had other people who, who live constantly with those lights on. And every time I've taken a car in for something like that, they look at, there's nothing wrong with your car, but the sensor is wrong. We'll gladly replace it for $500. And I say, I think I can live with it. But let me ask you this. What good is a sensor light, the engine problem light, if it's wrong, if it's never correct, it's useless. And with our conscience, if our conscience is constantly beeping at us over things that are not biblically wrong, then we've got a conscience that's controlling our lives in ways that are not right. And those consciences need to be informed. But that does not mean that you and I must force somebody else to go against their conscience. Paul, Paul's arguing against that throughout this passage of scripture. Let's press on. This person is also weak because 
They're weak in will. Chapter 8, verse 10. Here we have it. For if someone says to you, you have knowledge dining in the idol's temple, will, you not, will, will not his conscience, if he is weak, or if he is weak, strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? In other words, if someone sees you who are eating, in this case, eating this meat in the temples, they will be tempted to do the same. Why? Because they're, they're, they're weak in their will. All of you who've raised teenagers know that you, you want your kids to be in the right crowd, right? You, you, don't, you don't want your kids running around the wrong, in the wrong circle because they might pick up the issues and the sins and stuff of the wrong circle. So you want to get your kids involved in it with other good young people, which is why uh, we have an excellent youth group here with a lot of activity, a lot of, a lot of teachers, a lot of people involved in their lives. You, you need, if you have teenagers, your children need to be here. They need to be around other kids who know the Lord and love the Lord, and they need to be taught here. All that's important. Now, if you have an extremely strong teenager who will buck the system and will not be led astray, that's great. But if not... If they're weak, we have to be very careful. They'd not be led astray in that area. So this person is weak in the will. They're going against their own conscience because other Christians are doing it and they're being harmed in the process. What do we need to do for such people like this? We need to teach them the truth, but in love. That's what Paul is going to be saying throughout here. Let me answer, uh, ask another question before we move on to love. Why are... Christians weak. Why are these Christians weak? Why are any Christians weak as he defines it here? Let me give you three possible reasons. One, they're new Christians and they don't know any better. Uh, we come prepackaged with a wrong worldview. You know that? We come prepackaged with, uh, with our minds that are not in line with God. Uh, we don't think God's way. We don't live God's way. And we're in the process, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, of constantly having our not minds renewed by this, the things of God. That's what we need. And so we, we can expect that un, a, a new Christian is simply in the process. They don't know any better yet. Secondly, some Christians are afraid to grow. I've known many Christians, and maybe you're one of them, who would just like somebody to lay out for them the, the, the rules of Christian life. Just follow these rules, and you'll be fine. Read this version of the Bible, sing these songs, do this or that, and don't worry about, about, about these other things. We'll just tell you what to do. And when we have people like that, they're afraid to grow because they're afraid they might make a mistake. They never move forward. And then finally, you have a group of Christians who don't, don't want to grow. They're, they're content with what they are and who they are. And there's far too many Christians like that. Never become content, folks, in the Christian life. Don't, don't, don't become anxious about it, but at the same time, never get complacent. Always grow, always be growing, always moving forward. Otherwise, you get stale and you just stagnate. You might be like me. I, I, I would like to play an instrument. I, I would like to be able to do what some of these folks up here do. I started playing a guitar some years ago. I got down three chords and one strum, did it for three years and quit. Pretty boring. You got three chords and one strum, you know? And that's what we, we can do in the Christian life. We just have this little routine. We've been doing it forever, sat in the same chair. Matter of fact, if some of you move your chairs, I get nervous. We sit in the same chairs, we do the same things, we don't progress. Some Christians simply are, do not desire to grow in Him. So summarizing all this, 
Don't get securely snuggled in your knowledge. There's something superior. And he wants to talk about that now. It's love. Don't divorce love I don't, from knowledge. Knowledge is absolutely essential to necessary knowledge. But now he wants to move on to applying that to our relationships in love. So we drop down now to verse 8. And he says this in verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. Every verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Some of the Corinthian Christians were deeply offended by Christians who ate meat sacrificed to idols. And especially if they went to the temples to do so. And so they were very upset with them. Other Christians were very upset with that group of people because they felt their liberty was being taken away from them to do what they want to do. And so how does the Lord deal with that? He says here, look, I don't care about what you eat. Now verse 8 says that real clearly. Food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do not eat or better if we do eat. God says no matter what you eat, that doesn't make you a better Christian. No matter what you stop eating, doesn't make you a better Christian. The Lord said, I'm really not concerned about that. What is he concerned about? Go to verse 11. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. The Lord doesn't care about what you eat, but he cares about his people. Doesn't that say volumes to us? It doesn't matter to him if you have a, eat a steak or if you're a vegetarian. It doesn't matter, we're talking about on a spiritual level. It doesn't matter to him about those things, but it matters everything to him about his people. Are you willing, in other words, to hold out for your position in such a way that you're harming the very people that Christ died for? Think about that for a moment. Christ died for these people. Are you willing to harm them and hurt them? To hold up for your own position and your own ideas? He's concerned and teaches us that. When we ignore the weakness of others, look at verse 9. We take the chance of becoming a stumbling block to them. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Matter of fact, you might look down through there. I'm going to just give it to you real quickly. And we'll look at these individually to some degree. He mentions five different issues here with how we can harm one another. We can become stumbling blocks in verse 9 and 13. We can ruin one another in verse 11. We can wound one another in verse 12. We can sin against one another in verse 12. And we can sin against Christ in verse 12. That's five big things, isn't it? That we can do because we have knowledge, but we don't have love. So let's look at this stumbling block thing here very quickly. What is a stumbling block? He says you could become a stumbling block to the weak, even though you're right in your opinion. What is a stumbling block? Well, a stumbling block is anything that's thrown in a way that causes someone else to stumble. That's very simple, isn't it? A couple of weeks ago, the BTI, our Biblical Training Institute, I was over here getting ready to go, and I realized I, I forgot to bring something with me from my office. And we're, since we're doing it live, I had to hurry and go down and, and get the thing out of my office. So I ran down to my office real quickly. And as I was going in the office, I tripped over a chair that somebody had put there in front of my office door. 
It was probably Mike, uh, but, but it, it, it may not have been. So not, not that I would accuse him of that. But there, I fell over this, the chair and I had my microphone on live. And the people back here were hearing me and the people out in the world were hearing me. Fortunately, I said, what the heck? As I fell over my chair, you know. Uh, it was a stumbling block. I survived, the world survived. But it, did, it wasn't great, you know. Do I really want to be a stumbling block to other Christians? Do I, do, I, do I really want to be right in my opinions about things and at the same time others fall over me? I don't think most of us would like that. When we ignore, ignore that, notice the next what happens. He says, going on down, he says this, that verse 11, you ruined them. For through your knowledge, the weak is ruined. Wow, that's pretty ugly stuff, isn't it? In the book of James, uh, chapter 1, it talks about flower that fades or wilts. And that's the same word. This is not talking about causing someone to lose their salvation or anything like that, which can happen. This is talking about harming another person in such a way that the, the, the blossom wilts. So that the joy of their Christian life, the, the, the love of, of Christ that they had, the, the desire to serve for him wilts. Why would it wilt? Well, maybe because the way we're treating them causes them to wonder if this is even worth it. Why should I want to live for Christ if I'm being treated like this by the Christians? And we, so we can ruin them. Verse 12 says that we can wound them. By, so by sinning against the brother, we're wounding their conscience. We wound their conscience. So, so we think of a wound or of being stabbed or something there. And then it says in verse 12 that we sin against them. Because we have put ourselves before them. We love ourselves more than we care for them. We sin against them. Then it says in verse 12 that when you do that, you sin against Christ. Boy, the stakes are high now. By sinning against one another, we sin against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so this is big stuff, isn't it? Romans 14, 23 that I mentioned a while ago said, Whatever is not of faith is sin. So if we're, if we're doing something in such a way that we're causing our brothers or sisters to do something that they shouldn't be doing, that their conscience doesn't allow, then we're causing them to sin. Our arrogance has hurt them, has ruined them. And so we see all these things as a great concern. What is the alternative? Look at verse 13. Without mentioning the word love, he defines it. Remember, verse 1 of chapter 8 he says, love edifies. Love builds up. Knowledge, this, this puffed up knowledge, this knowledge that, that is without love, it's, it tears down, it ruins, it wounds, all these things. But love edifies. And look what he says in verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. What a statement. Paul said, I'm, I'm never going to eat meat again. Now, context here, of course, is this meat sacrificed to idols. I think the principle is broader. If I'm, go, if I'm going to do something that's harming my brother or sister in Christ, then I'm willing to forego that for their sake. That is the very essence of love for other people. Unfortunately, as we pull this, some of this together here, this has often been misinterpreted. And misused and misapplied and weaponized. There's a new word for you. Some have felt that anything that a Christian does, which another doesn't do or doesn't like, 
is a stumbling block and therefore we need to knock it off. Do you realize how that is impossible? If someone in your church, for example, doesn't believe that a Christian should watch TV or that, a, that they should carry a certain kind of Bible or that they, a woman shouldn't wear slacks or any number of things, we could just add that list, that list on, on, on and on. Does that mean that everybody in the church has to comply to those convictions of that individual? That would be impossible. Someday we ought to take a survey here of all the different views everybody has here. We could write three or four books with all the different views. It is impossible for every one of us to please everyone else. He's not talking about that. That's an impossibility. Even Christ himself didn't do that. Uh, Christ uh, didn't mind causing offense if it was necessary. Otherwise, he would have never have, uh, uh, did certain things that offended the Pharisees. For example, he wouldn't have healed people on the Sabbath. But he did. And he wouldn't have eaten with sinners, but he did, although the Pharisees were highly offended by what he was doing. You're not a stumbling block simply because you do something which others don't like or which they disapprove. Paul is using this term to refer to any action or words that would cause a truly born-again Christian who truly desires to progress in Christ to be what God wants him to be or her to be, and you're doing something that hampers that, that gets in the way of that, that harms that. And so you're wounding, you're ruining another Christian who truly wants to progress in Christ by actions that you're taking, by the words that you're saying, but not so much by your opinions, perhaps, but by the way you express them to them. And you're causing them harm in the process. What should you do? I'm going to close out by going back to Romans chapter 15. Chapter 14, actually. Romans chapter 14. I want to give you four timeless principles that should be the hallmark of how we interact with those we disagree with. And again, I'm drawing some of this from a Decision Making in the Will of God by Gary Friesen. He's outlined this quite well, and I want to follow that. Four different timeless principles that should wrap all this together. Number one, we should not judge one another. Do not judge one another. Chapter 14, verse 1 says this, Now accept the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Verse 3, The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Therefore, when we accept one another, it's not for the purpose of judging or contempt. If someone has a different opinion of you, your job is not to judge them. That's God's job. Your job is not to look down on them and condemn them and hold them with contempt. That's if God leaves them to God, he says here, God has accepted them. Uh, too often we want to play God. Too often we want to uh, decide and determine how people ought to live. And yet the scripture says you're not their judge. You don't hold them with contempt. And so when you have a difference of opinion with other Christians, you can have those opinions. You can do different things perhaps, but you cannot look down upon them with contempt in such a way as you think that they're inferior to you. That is unbiblical. Secondly, our liberty must not be a means of causing another to stumble. Verse 13, same thing it says in 1 Corinthians. 
Our liberty must not be a means of causing others to stumble. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Let me look at my life, let me look at the people in my life, and let me determine not to be a stumbling block for them. Is there anything I'm doing that's causing them to stumble? And it may not be so much my opinions, it might simply be my attitude. It might be the way I express myself or, or the arrogance which I come across. My, my desire to be right instead of being loving. Third, each of us must live with clear conscience. By the way, I hope you discuss this in your small group tonight, these four principles. Each of us must live with a clear conscience. Verse 22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Therefore, the scripture doesn't say push, your, push against your conscience. It says instead that, that we are happy when our convictions line up with our behavior. Do not do that which condemns yourself. Each of us must live with a clear conscience. Now, as you look at your own conscience, you might say, well, I'm not sure my conscience is guiding me the way it should. Don't go against your conscience. Don't, don't stake out a position against what your convictions are. Inform your conscience. Read the scriptures. Look into that issue until you are clear on what, how you should be, behave and what you should believe. And then number five, four, rather than pleasing yourself, we should do all to the glory of God. That's the basic principle of the Christian life, isn't it? Do all to the glory of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. The Christian life is not about pleasing us, me. It's about pleasing God. Look at verse 6. He says this, So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the great principle of the Christian life. All that I do is for the glory of God. That means there are certain things I may not do. There are certain ways, I, uh, my certain opinions I may not express. There, there are certain actions I may not take. Not because they're necessarily wrong, but because I want to do all to the glory of God. And there is our principle. These are timeless principles. Now here's what you'll notice. Paul does not give us five steps on unraveling all conflicts. He gives us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, timeless principles that are applicable to every circumstance that you'll ever face until the Lord returns. And aren't you glad he did that? I mean, this passage of scripture we're looking at here was a very unusual thing. Uh, you, when was the last time you got up and wondered if you were going to go down to the temple and buy meat sacrificed to idols? You've never done that, in America anyway. You've never done that. So if it was just about that, we really wouldn't have much to say. But if there are timeless principles, then it fits every other thing in our life as well. And so we, we know the issues that have gone on traditionally of, of conflicts and so forth, but there's always new ones. There, there's, there's more potential now, folks, I'll just be real honest. There be, there's more potential now for division among Christians since the pandemic broke out, the COVID issues, than anything I've seen in my, probably my whole ministry.
I hear about churches and ministries and situations that are absolutely blown up over different opinions about these different issues that are wrapped around the uh, COVID situations. And people have very strong opinions about this. And therefore, it is easily divisive. So here, what would be the principle drawn from our passage of Scripture today? The, the, the principle could be here that, that we have knowledge and we believe we're right, but are we loving our brothers and sisters in how we express those things? Are, are we loving our brothers and sisters who might have a different opinion about those things than we do? Are, are we simply in a situation where, where we look at other people and say, they're wrong, I'm right, and you need to come around to my position? If that's the case, it's not going to happen. I'll be quite honest with you. As I read about this, as I talk to other pastors, as I talk to people, I realize we're not all going to agree on this. Nobody here woke up this morning and thought about going to the temple to eat meat. But probably most people are thinking throughout the week about the issues related to COVID. How are you handling that? When this first broke out months and months ago, a year and a half ago, the very first thing we did as we began to talk to you by live stream was that we now have, and this was the basic thrust of the message I gave, we now have an unbelievable supreme opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ even if we don't agree on every issue. We have the supreme opportunity to show people that we don't agree with necessarily the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. We've got this particular issue going on now. You think, you think there's not going to be something else in a couple of years? There certainly will be. This is a divisive world. It's an angry world. And that's not how Christians live. Christians live according to the timeless principles that Christ has given us, especially the principle that we do all things for the glory of him, not to please ourselves. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you now for your word, your truth. Lord, we are undeserving of all the things we've talked about today and, and these issues of conflict uh, that are traditional as well as contemporary are never going to go away in this life. We're always going to have need to go back to passages like this to see how you would have us behave and act and think. Lord, I pray that uh, we will allow the scriptures to inform us, to change us, to transform us through the power of your spirit. And I pray, Father, that this word has been helpful to us today. And as we go to our small groups later today, I pray that we're able to come together and talk about some of these things in ways that are, that are applying these things to our individual lives and to our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.